you would take your Bible today and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians, chapter number 3. If you don't have a Bible with you today, no pressure. We'll have the words up on the screen so you can follow along with us. 1 Corinthians, chapter number 3. First Corinthians 3. In this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is going to introduce what is and was a revolutionary idea to the church of Corinth. And that is that the church of God now, in the new covenant, is the temple of God. You're going to see that when we read it in just a few moments. And I noticed that didn't shake you or move you or, or upset you in any way when I said that. And that's because you're a Baptist in a church in Alabama. Going to temple is not part of your life. You don't think about going to any sort of temple, much less going to a temple in Jerusalem. It's just not on your radar at all. But, but to understand the Bible is to understand that one of the most important characters in all of the Bible is not a person, but it's that building, the temple. In fact, one of the most important characters in the story of Jesus, especially the last week of Jesus' life, is the temple. Do you remember the story when Jesus went to the temple and, and made a whip and cleaned out the temple? Do you remember that? Did you realize today that you came to church to worship somebody who knew how to make a whip? Makes, makes me wonder what Jesus did with his free time, you know, but why does he do that? Does he just come to church aggravated like so many Baptists I know and say, all right, enough, enough? What's happening there? Well, by the time, by the time you get to the life of Jesus, the temple where the Jewish people worshipped had become big business, and that's because there were Jewish people scattered all over that part of the world that would have to make annual pilgrimages back to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts and to go through things like Passover and the Day of Atonement and different celebrations that they had. But you can imagine that if you lived 100 miles away from Jerusalem in the first century, the last thing you would want to do is to take your goat for the sacrifice and to take your lambs and to take your sheep and, you know, to take your, this is the same thing, to take your bulls, all that stuff. You wouldn't want to walk through the desert trying to keep all of that in tow. And so the people that ran the temple, they said, not a problem. We'll make this as easy as we can for you. We'll just sell it to you when you get here. And so they had opened up a cattle sale right there in the temple, in the house of God. And so people would come to pray and try to commune with God, and in the background, and it was noisy. You can imagine what cows and sheep do to the carpet. It was a hot, noisy, stinky mess. Now, on top of that, the people that ran the temple, they only accepted temple currency. You had to use their monopoly money to buy your sacrifices. But... People came from different parts of the world. They didn't have that money. And so they said, hey, that's not a problem. We'll take care of that for you. When you come in here, just exchange your money and for a nominal fee. We'll be happy to give you money that you can use to buy our sacrifices from us for your convenience. And so people traveling into Jerusalem to worship at the temple, they had to overcome the noise. They had to overcome the smell. They had to overcome the fact that they were being robbed blind. And they had to step over all of these obstacles just to come into the house of God. When Jesus walked into the temple one day, he'd had enough. He walked into this temple that was part megachurch, part Disney World, and part Jewish flea market. And he said, that's enough. 
He said all the noise and all the smell and all the robbery, he said it's overcoming people's ability to worship. And you know the story. He makes the whip. He overturns the tables. And there are animals scattering everywhere, birds flying, people running for their lives. And what did Jesus say that day? Do you remember what he said? He said exactly right. That's why y'all need to pay John to do what I do. He said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus says this is supposed to be God's house. You have junked up God's house with all of this mess. He said, you have made the house of God a storeroom for your trash instead of a showroom for God's treasure. The Apostle Paul is going to come to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3 and say much the same thing. You have made this church that is supposed to be the temple of God a storeroom for your trash instead of a showroom for God's treasure. Let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse number 5. Paul begins with a question. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servant through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, here's the big bomb he drops. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Now, if you've been with us over the past couple of months on Sunday mornings here at Sharon Heights, as we've studied this great, great letter to the church of Corinth, you have seen that this is a church that is in a state of severe disrepair. This is a church that has been cluttered up with people's sins, this is a church that has been junked up with people's trash. This is a church that is messed up by people's baggage. And what they really need to do at Corinth is they really need to have a church work day. 
Not where they come and trim the hedges and put some paint on the walls, but they need somebody to come in and expose their sin. They need somebody to come in and open up the windows and let in some fresh air and get rid of all the stale stench of their sin. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to do in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4 as he addresses the big problem, the big junk room in the church, the big issue in the room, which is their division, their division over their ministry preferences or their preferences in pastors and their favorite styles of preaching the word and a church that is playing party politics and is divided along deep party lines. Paul comes to them and says, listen, the reason your church is divided is because you've made something other than Jesus more important than Jesus. And he puts Jesus right back in the middle of the church, tells the church to get their eyes on them, to get their eyes on, get their eyes on him and off of everything else. And now the Apostle Paul is going to come to them to remind them, at the end of the chapter you see, verse 23, of who they are. Remind them of whose they are. You are Christ. And God has been good to you in Jesus. He's given you life and death and the future. He's given all of this to you. So quit fighting over the good things of God and enjoy what God has done. But for the church to do that, they've got to be cleaned up a little bit. And so Paul is going to help them do that. First of all, he's going to help them do that by revisiting the work of God in verses 5 through 9. And so today we need to revisit the work of God to understand what it means for us to be his temple. Now Paul begins in verse 5 with a question. What is Apollos? Interesting, he doesn't say who is Apollos, but he says, what is he? Paul's doing this, again, because the church is divided over their favorite preacher their favorite personality, their favorite way of doing church. They've all got an opinion, they've all got an idea, but all of that confusion reveals a deeper misunderstanding about what the role that Paul and Apollos and others had had. What is a minister of the gospel? That's the question. What is a Christian leader? What was an apostle? What is a pastor? That's an important question for you to answer today, too. Because you're here today listening to a pastor pastor. Maybe you should know kind of what's going on. Maybe you should know what to expect. Maybe you should understand what it is that Christian leaders are supposed to do. There was a deep misunderstanding about what pastoring and ministering was, which came from a deeper understanding of how God actually works among his people. So what are they? Well, Paul says they are servants. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, he says, through whom you believe. The word servants, we we would know better as the English word deacon. It's the same Greek word. And a a deacon, a diakonos in Greek was, was a servant. Somebody who did menial tasks at the orders of a master. Somebody who cleaned off tables. Somebody who washed feet. Somebody who took out the trash. When you go to lunch today, if you go out to eat today, you're going to eat, and then you're going to leave that table, and you're going to leave all your mess. And then somebody with a towel in his pocket and a bottle of Windex or whatever is going to come and he's going to get all your nasty plates and all your cups and he's going to put them in a big bucket and he's going to spray it off and he's going to do this. And he's going to call it clean. That kid is a diakonos. He is a servant. And when you go to that restaurant, you don't go to that restaurant, you might brag on the food, you might brag on the ambiance, you might be proud of the prices, but you don't go with your eyes on the busboy, do you? You don't leave there saying, man, I tell you, that bus boy, he did a fantastic job. I mean, he's really hustling. He's better than that regular kid they got. That other kid's useless, but this guy, he is our guy. Why? Because he's just part of the background. 
And that's what Paul's getting at here in this passage of Scripture. He's saying that as ministers, he says, our objective is never to be the center of attention. But our objective is merely to be the window you look through so that you see Jesus. There is a, um, there's a great painting of Martin Luther preaching in Germany in the 16th century. And the painting is arranged in such a way where he's preaching and that Christ crucified is right in the middle of the church. That as he preaches, he sets forth Christ. And that's what Paul had tried to do. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, I had forgotten everything but Christ and him crucified. What is a Christian pastor? What is a ministry leader? Somebody to fight about, somebody to argue over, somebody to criticize and condemn, or are they just a servant of Jesus who's trying to point people to him? Paul says we are servants. And even though he says we have a work to do, he says in the end it's really all God's work. He says I planted, in verse number 6, And Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. Now, I love, I love the agricultural metaphors that Paul uses for ministry. I want to drill down on these because I think they're important for us. We've lost lost touch with the agricultural, hands-in-the-dirt world of the Bible. And so I want to just drill down here, and we might not get through all of 1 Corinthians 3 today, and if, if we don't, that's fine, we'll be here next week, but... We, we have lost touch with these agricultural metaphors. Industrialization shapes the way we think about church and ministry because we live in an industrialized society. And so we think a church should function the way that, you know, Henry Ford designed the assembly line to work. That you get the right people in the right place, everybody's grinding out their job, and you just move one little piece on to the next part of the line, and then at the end of the day, you've got a fully functioning Model T or a fully functioning Christian that's ready to roll off. And so we think that church life is all about who can streamline their processes or systems and do the best work so to get the best ROI, so they can get the best results. And that's how we judge effectiveness. Which church has the best people in the right place so that they are getting the most product off the assembly line and who's doing the best work? Paul wouldn't have understood a bit of that. Paul never touched a light switch. You know that, right? But Paul did understand a world where you dig little holes in the ground, you put seeds in it, cover them up with dirt, and you have to come back the next day and water them. Y'all understand that world, too. How many of y'all got a garden in your backyard? Amen. We like squash at my house. That's just in case you're, just in case you need to know. This is the world that Paul's talking about. He's talking about a world where the work of growth is often unseen, where the work of growth is often hidden where it's imperceptible to the eye, where you can't see it, you can't detect it, you don't always know that it's happening, but it is a genuine work of God. Paul says that that's the way that it works really in this field that God is cultivating. He says it is the one that, he says God is the one who does the work. God is the one who always gives the growth. It may be slow, it may be labor-intensive, but we do our part and we trust God with the results because in the end, it comes down to God doing what God alone can do. So let me make sure this is as clear as it can be for all of you today. Your pastor cannot grow your church because your pastor cannot grow a Christian. Think about it. Who can grow a Christian? God alone can do that work in the heart. He alone can do this work that is deep inside the soil of our souls. And so Paul says, listen, he says, what am I, what is Apollos? He said, we're just simple tools that God used. We're the shovel, and we're the rake, and we're the watering can, and we're the wheelbarrow, and that's all we are. He said, we're nothing impressive, and we're nothing important, but we are working together, he says in verse number 8. 
He says we're not working against each other. He says we are working together. But like the Corinthian church, we fall into the same habits that they had where we like certain workers and like certain personalities and we identify with those people that God has used to make an impact in our lives and we attach ourselves to them and we become so attached to them that we look at other believers who aren't attached to them and we wonder about them. Do they really have what I have? Have they really arrived? Can they really be trusted? Are they as mature? Are they as significant? Are they even really Christians? Because they're not part of my tribe. Paul says, we're just workers doing what God expects us to do. It reminds me of what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 17. He said, the day will come when you will answer for your work. And he said, on that day, what you're going to say is we are unworthy servants. We've just done what was our duty. He said, for all the work we did, for all the hours and for all the time, we're just doing what we had to do because our Lord commanded it and expects it. But before we leave and move on to Paul's next metaphor of the temple being built, um, what do we take with us from this? I think you need to take with you from this passage of Scripture the principle that your work for the Lord matters. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth, but he said we will receive our reward. I don't know where God has put you serving him, or however God has equipped you, and whatever it is that you do, whatever corner of the vineyard that you're laboring in, whether you're sowing or watering or harvesting, whatever you're doing, I want you to know today that your work matters and that God knows your work. God sees your work. In some way, God will bless your work. Now, you might not see the harvest for it. You might hand off the next phase of the work to somebody else, but God will reward you in his time and in his way. And so let me encourage you today, even though it can be so frustrating, day in and day out, sweating and breaking your back, and you feel like you're just an old draft horse being pulled out of the barn and stuck in the plow to go and break your back again, keep plowing, keep digging, keep working, because one day God will bless the work of his people. I know sometimes you stand up here in the choir and you sing and you look out over this congregation and you think, did these people even come to church today? You know what you do? You take a deep breath for the glory of God and you rear back and sing and you put a hand in the air and a smile on your face and you keep plowing. I know you teach that Sunday school class full of those teenage boys and they look at you with dead eyes and you think, Lord, do we need to even check their pulse today? And you can't remember in your lesson, you can't remember the difference between Ahasuerus and Cyrus and, 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 and Xerxes and Nebuchadnezzar. And you think, I'm making a mess of it. You know what you do? You get up tomorrow morning before the sun comes up, pour a cup of coffee, open your lesson and open your Bible and get ready to do it again next Sunday. And you get in the plow and you stay in the plow and you dig and you labor and you work until God says it's time to move on to the next part of the field. We, were, we had a deacon's meeting last Sunday, and I, I don't like to always broadcast things that happens in deacon's meetings, but Brother Corey, Brother Corey's at laying on the beach right now. I hate his guts, man. I think, I think people need to get away. Pastors especially need to get away. I just hate it when, you know, they get to. But, so y'all pray for him. He's suffering for Jesus in Florida right now. I was going to say something to him if he's watching. He ain't watching. No, I know he ain't watching. <laughs> But he, Corey gave our devotional, and he took our devotional, uh, our text from Galatians chapter 6, and verse number 9. 
And in Galatians chapter 6, verse number 9, Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season, due season, I'm from North Carolina, I can't pronounce that, in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And I looked at those words, just that last sentence, that last little clause, do not give up. Do not give up. Is it harder sometimes than it is other times? Yes, don't give up. Is it difficult work? Sometimes. Don't give up. Is it sometimes exhausting and wearisome? Yes. But do not be weary. Do not give up. Y'all, there ain't a quitting place for God's people on this side of glory. One day we will be able to lay down our labor. And one day we will be able to rest in the shade of the trees on the other side of the river. But that day is not today. Do not give up. Our Heavenly Father does not raise quitters. Somebody say amen. Now. We should recognize that our work matters. We should also recognize that we are working together, not against each other. There were Paul people that didn't trust the Apollos people and Apollos people that didn't like the Peter people. And that Peter. Don't give up, man. I about said something about pecks of pickled peppers, but I didn't. They all looked at one another and said, that's not our team somebody else's team church we're all on the same team man we're all in this together we're all in the same field we have a different task and we have a different role but we're all in this together but what can happen is as God gifts us and as God gives us ministry passions and as he gives us a place to serve we think that the little place where we're doing that's the only thing that matters right there, there are people that are passionate about children's ministry thank God for them and they, they, you know, children are the future of the church, and they think that's the only thing that matters. And they think every dollar of the church budget ought to go to buying baby wipes and, and goldfish crackers. And they can't understand, why would anybody ever come to a church work day? Don't they know that they need to be doing this? Well, we all have a different place to, a part to fill, a different place. We had a Sunday school teacher's meeting this morning. I go to a lot of meetings, if you haven't noticed that. What, what is a pastor? Paul asked that in this question. Somebody who goes to a lot of meetings. And in our Sunday school teachers meeting this morning, um, Sister Margaret shared with us a story that I, I asked if I could share. So if I get this wrong, please forgive me. And you can go to her to make sure I get it right afterwards. You won't have any problem correcting, I promise you that. But, but Sister Margaret, Sister Margaret faithfully served in children's ministry in different capacities for, what, 25 years? And, and the day came where that season ended. And she said that, that she had 25 years worth of, I don't know what you'd call it, mementos boxed up in her basement, stored up and ready for the next opportunity. And she said it was so hard for her to get rid of that, so hard for her to move on from that because for so long she had developed her identity from serving in that area powerful testimony of her faithfulness and it illustrates the point i think that paul's making here that sometimes we become so attached to the work that we don't realize it's not our work it's god's work margaret god's the one who worked in all those years in children's ministry god's the one who works in you choir god is the one who works in our sunday school teachers and all the different areas of our ministry and we're all working with him paul says that in this passage of scripture he says we are god's fellow workers 
We're not working against each other. We're working with him and with one another. And then Paul just out of nowhere mixes his metaphors. He says, you are God's field. Then he says, you are God's building. And so Paul is going to not only revisit the work of God, but he's going to reimagine the temple of God. And this is, I think, the heartbeat of this text of Scripture here. As Paul paints himself, verse 10, as a master builder, an architect, an architect or a lead contractor on a building project. And he says that he had come in to Corinth, and he had laid the foundation. And the foundation was the gospel that he had preached. And now he had handed that work off to other people who were building on that foundation with different materials. But the question before them is, are they going to build on that foundation with solid materials when Paul's done pouring his foot in and when Paul is done mixing his mud and when Paul is done laying his block and he hands it all off to the framing crew and the roofing crew and the sheetrock guys, are they going to cut corners? Are they going to use substandard material? Or are they going to build something solid and eternal that lasts? Now, Paul talks a lot about the foundation here. I hope if y'all say amen right here, you're going to cut 10 minutes out of the sermon today, all right? How many of y'all know that the only foundation for the church of Jesus Christ is him and his gospel? All right, we can roll right on through that. How many of y'all know that Jesus is the only foundation for a solid life? Jesus says that in Matthew 7, right? You remember that song, the wise man built his house upon the rock. We build our lives on any number of substructures. But the only sure foundation for a solid life is Jesus and his teachings. But Paul asks, what are you going to build on top of that foundation? He says in verses 12 and 15, he says, take care. Really says in verse 10, take care. You can build with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay. Don't know why you build anything out of hay, but... Maybe you can just throw it on there. What are you going to build? Are the contributions you are going to make to the work of God already happening here at Sharon Heights, are your contributions going to be lasting or are they just going to be crappy? You can build with gold or you can build with hay. Paul says you need to take care, pay careful attention. The Greek verb that he uses there is, is the Greek verb blepeto. It comes from the Greek word blepo, which sounds like an Italian clown's name don't it blepo the clown blepo and blepo means to scrutinize to pay close attention to really examine the work that you are doing your contribution to the gospel of Jesus Christ how many of our men here I would ask the ladies but I don't want to embarrass y'all I don't care about embarrassing the men how many of our men here have ever injured themselves in a building project? Guys, I about lost a thumb moving car seats around the other week. It happens. I used to work with this guy named Joe, and Joe had ran afoul of a table saw and lost. So he only had these, whichever hand it was, he only had these three fingers. Why did that happen to him? Because he did not blepo. He did not pay careful attention. When I worked that same job one day, I shot a two-and-a-half-inch finish nail into my thumb. That's what I said, ouch. And it hurt, obviously, when it happened. But as soon as it happened, I looked at it, and I thought, well, it's got to come out. And so I go for somebody to render some medical aid, 
who do you think the first person I came to was? Joe with his lobster hands. And he said, all right, we're going to get it out, hon. But he, he got it out, and I lived to tell about it. But that happened because I did not blepo, because I was not paying careful attention. Let me ask you today, as part of this church body, are you paying close attention to what you are building on the foundation of the gospel here? Or are you just trying to cut corners? Are you just trying to give what you got left over instead of giving your best. You're giving God leftover time, giving God leftover money, giving God leftover energy. You're just kind of throwing it out there like it doesn't really matter, thoughtlessly trying to rush through your spiritual life and rush through your work for the Lord. You need to blepo before somebody gets hurt because Paul envisions a day in this passage of Scripture when the fire of God's judgment comes through this temple and he says it burns up all of that junk. And he says that when that happens, I imagine he's looking ahead to the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 15, he says, those people will be saved. But he said they're going to suffer great loss. Think about those two words, saved and lost. There are some people that are going to go to heaven and they're going to smell like they were bought at a fire sale. Because everything, everything in their life will burn up have no reward to show for all that they could have been and all that God could have done. Are you building subpar work? God deserves the best. Why? Because the building that he is building, this building project we're part of, God's not building a campground for trailers. God's building a temple. This is what Paul says in this passage of Scripture. He says, you are God's temple. Now, uh, what Paul does here, uh, really, he, he says, y'all are God's temple. These are plural pronouns. Y'all are God's temple. There needs to be a, a, a version of the Bible for Southerners to help make this clear to us, all right? For y'all are God's temple. He's talking to the church. He says, you all, y'all, y'all are the temple of God now. He says, you are the place where heaven touches earth now. Now, think about what that means. I mentioned this in my sermon Wednesday night. That Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees God high and lifted up in the temple. Holy. And the angels, the, the cherubim around the throne, they are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He sees the God of Israel in such glory that his train fills the temple. And Isaiah basically says, if God's here, there ain't room for both of us. And Isaiah has to humble himself before God. That's happening inside of you now. Where is the holy place that was in Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant? Where is that now? Right here. I am, and you are. Together we are the place where the God of heaven touches down into this world. Man, some of y'all ain't, ain't tracking with that. Y'all ain't tracking with that. Let me go ahead and preach to you for a minute. The God of Genesis 1 who spoke and nothing responded and became everything. That God dwells inside of his people now. Not in a holy place, behind a curtain, in a tabernacle, or in a temple in Jerusalem, but inside of his people now. Now Paul's thinking about the, 
the temple in Jerusalem, the Corinthians were probably thinking about pagan temples in Corinth where they would go and meet with their gods, they thought. But Paul says, listen, your God has chosen to dwell inside of you. And so that the church together now functions as the place where heaven touches down into earth. So what right do we have to destroy the temple of God? To destroy it with our gossip. To destroy it with our sinfulness and our apathy and our selfishness. If anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. See, God's temple is holy. You are that temple. We're to be reimagined the temple of God. But Paul finishes in verses 18 through 23 by saying we need to reevaluate the gifts and the wisdom of God. In this concluding, concluding paragraph, the Apostle Paul echoes what he said in chapters 1 and 2, that God has never been impressed with the wisdom of the world that impresses us. In fact, he's doing every single thing that he can to embarrass the wisdom of the world. He quotes from Job 5, 13. He quotes from Psalm 94, 11 and verses 19 and 20. And he says that God is working to upend our conventional thinking because our conventional thinking is that if we are important and if we are impressive, then we can matter. Paul says the gospel never tells you to matter. It never tells you to be impressive. It never tells you to be important. But the gospel announces to all sinners, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Whosoever will, let him come. As unimpressive, as unimportant, as sinful as he might be, come to Jesus and receive eternal life and become the dwelling place of God. That's what the gospel offers. And Paul says that just destroys all of the conventional thinking of the world where now up is down, last is first, and death is life. And I wonder if we really believe that. As the people of God, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the first will be last and the last will be first? Do we really believe that we are going to be in heaven with a bunch of people who don't deserve to be there? Well, we are. <laughs> Do we really believe that God is not interested in impressing the impressive people of the world? That God is interested in saving the weak and the foolish of the world? We should be thankful because that's where he found us. Paul says God has flipped all of this on its head so much so that he has just given us everything. That's how he concludes this chapter. He said, God has just fooled around and given you, the people of God, everything. Everything. And what Paul does here is, is so massive that I honestly just don't possess the capacity to describe it. He says, everything is yours. If God has given you to Christ and given Christ to you, everything is yours as a gift. Life. Death. So how could death possibly be a gift? Because death has been defeated. And death is no longer your final enemy. Death is no longer the last page of the story. Death is merely the opening chapter to real life. Because it's through death that God will finish and complete our full salvation and take us home to be with Him. Death is a gift for the people of God. The future is yours. You say, oh, but the future is so uncertain. Maybe to us it is. But your future is a gift from your God saying to you, it is yours and it is for your good. The present is a gift. Everything is a gift to you from God. And then he's saying that to say, Apollos was a gift from God to you. I was a gift from God to the church. Do you realize 
Paul would echo this in Ephesians 4. Do you realize that the leaders God gives, he gives as gifts? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. There are a lot of people in the world that will never hear anyone preach the gospel to them. They'll live and die their whole life and, and never hear anybody open a Bible and tell them about Jesus. But God has been so good to you to give you people who try to faithfully preach the word of God to you. So why in the world would we take that gift and fight over it? See, this is what we do with the gift of, gift of God, isn't it? We think more of the blessings God gives than we do the one who gives the blessings. But anytime we take the blessings of God and we let them distract us from the goodness of God who gives the blessings, those blessings become curses. That's what had happened in Corinth. They had been blessed with all these great things, but they were territorial and tribal, and they were fighting over them, and so that those blessings from God had become curses that were dividing them. Now, that happens to us in a million different ways. A job is a blessing from God, but it's easy to let that job distract us from Him in that. A family is a blessing from God. Our health is a blessing from God. On and on and on we could go. But God's blessings become curses when the blessings become more important to us than the one who gave them to us, and they just curse us. And because that had happened in Corinth, they forgot that they existed as a temple of God where people could experience God's presence, know His glory, learn about His Son. And they had junked up their temple with the trash of their sin. Paul says it's time to clean it out. It's time to clean it out. They had forgotten, like those Jews when Jesus made his whip and flipped over the tables. They had forgotten that they existed as a place to meet with and see God. Church, have we forgotten that? It's easy to forget that, isn't it? It's easy to get so busy in our work, so frustrated by our work. It's easy to become so divided and so sinful. Any number of things can happen where we start to bring all of our baggage in here and we forget that we exist as a place to meet with God. We exist as a people who are the temple of God. This is the place where heaven touches earth, not this building, but us together, the people of God. God wants to meet with us and he will. But he might come with a whip in his hand to clean out what's junked up so that the blessings of grace can flow again. What I think would be good is for us to come to him today and say, Lord, clean me out. Clean me up. Make our church a place where people meet with God, hear him and experience him. And Lord, don't ever let us get to the place where we are obscuring your presence where we are muffling your voice, ignoring your will. God, let this be about your desire to be a house of prayer. What is that? A place of communion with God for all people. Let's stand together today. Your work matters. We're not working against one another. We're working together. You are the temple of God, a place where God wants to meet with this world. God has blessed you so greatly. But don't think those blessings are better than the God who blessed you with the blessings. However the Lord has spoken to you today, some of you may need to come. And you may need to say, Lord, I need you to get rid of some of the junk in me so I can meet with you again. 
Lord, I need you to encourage me in this journey so that I can continue to get in that plow and continue to pull and sweat and labor. Lord, I need to go to somebody. And Lord, I need to seek their forgiveness for thinking we weren't on the same team. Lord, forgive me for being territorial. Lord, help me to remember this is your work and not mine. However you need to respond today, we're going to sing today. If you need to, I challenge you to come and do business with the Lord.